Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Job. Now, I would like anybody listening to this to have their Bibles open to James chapter 5, but before we begin to dive into what St. James has to say and later what Job has to say, this is a reminder for everybody listening on SoundCloud that this recording was live-streamed. If you would like to join the live stream to enjoy the fellowship time that we have and the conversations to be able to ask me directly some of these questions or any objections that you have to what I'm teaching, please feel free to send me an email at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com and we can get you hooked up with a link to the Telegram channel where we hold these streaming Bible studies. And for anybody interested in supporting the Very Lutheran Project, there is a link in the support tab at verylutheran.biz for anybody wishing to donate or send anything via the P.O. box address we have there. All of your support is incredibly, incredibly appreciated as this is how I provide for my children as God has called me to do. But with that said, enough about housekeeping stuff. Let's get into James chapter 5, beginning in the 7th verse. Hear the word of our Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We take from St. James's cue, from his teaching, that the entire point of the book of Job is that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But also, for us Christians, we are called to be steadfast and patient, even in the face of horrific suffering like the prophet Job. With that said, we turn now to the book of Job, the seventh chapter. For context, Job opened up his mouth and spoke about his despair, his pain at everything that he had lost. And his friend Eliphaz began to speak well, acceptable Lutheran doctrine, law and gospel to Job in the midst of that. But in Job chapter 6, the man rebuffs his friend's words, saying, this is not right, this is not applicable. Why would you say these things to a friend? This isn't comforting me or helping me at all. But he continues in Job chapter 7, with a distinct change in tone, let us begin in the first verse. Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? 
Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so am I allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing until the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt, my skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any more. Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, if what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have made you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job speaks from absolute hopelessness. He speaks as much about this. It's very plain. But while he has expressed that despair earlier in the third chapter and in the sixth chapter, he continues with now a complaint. He asks God, why don't you stop? Why do you have to do this? Now we must remember Throughout all of the book of Job, in the first chapter, and in the second chapter, and in the 42nd chapter, God does not accuse Job of speaking wrongly. He expresses his heart, sometimes rashly. And he doesn't deny that at times he is a little too rambunctious in his words. He does not deny that he is a sinner, as we have seen in this chapter. But Job is permitted to have these emotions, especially as he is not careful, uh, he is careful to not charge God with wrong. So we restart with a closer look at verse 1 of this chapter. Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Job is clearly aware of the curse placed upon Adam in Genesis 3. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat your bread. In verse 2, Job says, Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who works for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Even though Job, in his current state, cannot work, 
He can't till a field for a friend to make ends meet for his wife, who currently isn't even looking at him right now in all likelihood. Even though he cannot tend to his cattle, they are all dead. He cannot help his children, they are all dead. He cannot direct his workers or even teach anyone. He's lost everything. He still experiences the curse of Adam. I believe this is something of a prophetic utterance because those in this life who are blessed beyond measure, those lucky stiffs that we know, the trust fund babies, the kids out there that are from well-to-do families and they don't really have to work a single day in their life, they are not exempt from the curse of Adam. They are not exempt from that and even a man who cannot work is still, whether by medical necessity or other issues in his life, he is still going to suffer. And so Job, clearly we understand his suffering. Terrible things have happened to him. But the aspect of human suffering is universal regardless of circumstances. At the very least, for believers as St. Paul will later, in agreement with Job, say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, all who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even if you have a good life, a materially blessed life, you're in good health, you are going to go through your fair share of pain and suffering. Job is not unique, except and the fact that he was blameless, as our Lord says in the first chapter. In the fourth verse, he says, When I lay down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. This may be a commentary on his emotional state. He is under great emotional duress during this time, but having spent seven days with his friends that traveled to meet him, he is also still in immense physical pain with the blisters and sores that are all over his body. He says in verse 5, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. There is no sanitation where he is. This is the ancient Near East. He cannot go take a hot shower. Parasites have begun eating the dead flesh on his body. He can't just go take a bath. Water is a scarce resource. They need it for drinking. He cannot wash away all of the scavengers that are coming and adding rot to his humiliation and his pain. And even worse, he says his skin hardens then breaks out afresh. Meaning, he's tossing around while he is asleep. As his body forms scabs, and he is still in pain, so he tosses and turns. These scabs break apart. This man is in a state of constant pain. So he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. He predicts here that he will die soon. How, after all, can a man persist like this? Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Job is wrong as anybody who has read the last chapter of Job can ascertain, his life is not a breath. He is going to live many years after this, and he will die a happy and blessed man. But in this moment, 
He has nothing going for him. It is perfectly rational for him to say, I've got nothing, I'm going to die soon. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. He believes that he is going to die very, very soon, that even his friends will witness his passing. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any more. Now truly, honestly, this Bible study series is kind of devotional in nature. We do bring up doctrine where it is spoken of, and we speak about what the Bible teaches on it, but Job is a text to be wrestled with. If you have spare time, I highly recommend reading and studying on Dr. Luther's doctrine of tentatio, struggle, in which the pastor or layman or theologian who reads Holy Scripture, he's going to have to struggle with the text at times. He's going to have to wrestle with God and what God is saying. What does not make sense to our flesh, that does make sense to God, is going to lead to tension that must be resolved, sometimes by experience. That is tentatio. And there is the mind involved in that, what we know theologically. And here, Job mentions Sheol. What is Sheol? Sheol, often translated the grave, is where people in the Old Testament went when they died. It's not just the grave. The author of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, or Koheleth, he speaks about Sheol in detail. It's a gray, shadowy place where you're not quite aware of what is going on. It's very dreamlike, and you can't even tell your right hand from your left. Later on, something gets clarified about Sheol in Luke chapter 16, Lazarus and Dives in which our Lord Jesus does speak of a great chasm there on one hand, Abraham with Lazarus resting in Abraham's bosom while Dives, the rich man, suffers in pain until judgment day. Does this apply to believers today? No. If you are a baptized believer in Christ Jesus, upon the moment of your death, which won't feel like death, you will be with our Lord. It'll be a good thing. You will go directly where all of the other saints are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. But before the atonement, before our Lord Christ went to the cross for us and for everybody throughout all history, saints went to Sheol. And we don't know that much about it except it is equivocal to Hades in the New Testament. Think of it as something of a refrigerator in hell. But we move on. In verse 11, Job decides once more, speaking of his destitute state, he gets frustrated and finally says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I'm dying anyway. I don't have any hope. I've lost everything. And now I'm in constant pain. My flesh is rotting away. There's worms eating and I can't even bring myself to get them off of my body and nobody's helping me. Fine, I'm going to speak my peace. Is the attitude one gets from the text. Now he addresses God directly. For the first time he says, 
Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? Well, God will speak about Leviathan later. Job doesn't know all the details about that, but if there is some big beast here, he says to God, why do you set a guard over me? As a reference to his friends. They are acting like something of a guard. After all, the man has been popping his blisters with a pot shirt sharp enough to do so. There must be a concern that he's going to kill himself. In one sense, God did send Job's friends to comfort him. And there's nothing wrong in saying that, but Job is frustrated by it. Verse 13, when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I would choose strangling in death rather than my bones. He can't sleep. Even if he does finally fall asleep, in spite of the pain that he is going through, the emotional torment that he's going through is giving him awful dreams, awful visions. Can you imagine losing your most beloved children? And then you have nightmares recounting their death. It's a terrible fate. It's a terrible thing to happen to you, to dream about it every single night. Now, there are people that lose everything, absolutely everything. Their life is ruined, whether by malicious actors or by economic distress or something they cannot control. As somebody who's been through that more than once, I can tell you, you dream about it. And chances are, if you've gone through it, you have too. The heart explores human thoughts, emotions, and memories as we dream. And Job says it's not just that. God is terrifying him with visions. And he wishes he would die. I would choose strangling in death. Let somebody kill me. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone. Now we could say, that Job is speaking to his friends here. After all, perhaps he's speaking to his friends setting a guard over him. We could try to comfort ourselves with that, because who in their right mind would ask God to leave them alone? But then, he says in verse 17, What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? Oh no, that is not Job's friend. Now, it's interesting that we should read, what is man? What is man that you make so much of him? For a moment, entertain this. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? And you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Alas, if Eliphaz is quoted by Isaiah, the author of Psalm 8, he clearly knew what Job said, and he was meditating on what Job said and wrestling with it. This is why some commentators believe that Job was the first book of the Bible to be written. Even King David was reading it and thinking to himself, what is man that God thinks about him? Well, I know about a certain special man, King David being prophetic in his own right. He knows about a certain special man that the author of Hebrews will identify as Christ. 
who temporarily was made a little lower than the angels, who was humiliated. But the first one to ask this question, boldly, I might add, was Job. And he wasn't asking it in the wondrous way that King David asks it. I imagine King David sitting on a hill or in his palace with the scroll of the prophet Job, reading it going, well, Job is asking this in the context of leave me alone. Why do you care so much about me? Why do you watch me? Why am I being tested? David says, wait, no, this same God blesses us. And he blesses us by the capital M man by whom we will have a good ending, by whom we have salvation. But Job in this moment cannot see this. So he says in verse 18 uh, that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment. I beg of you, do not deny this. God does test us. His law is written in our heart and God, the omnipresent being, looks upon us and tests the hearts of men by this law. And Job wants to know, why do you care? Sure, you made me. Sure, you you made everything. But why do you care? My life is a breath. I'm going to die anyway. So he says, how long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Uh, Presumably thinking maybe at one point he just won't be able to move and he's going to drown in his own saliva as it accumulates in his mouth. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? How have I offended you? Eliphaz had just brought up the inclination, the implication that he sinned. What does that matter to God? He's up there in heaven. I'm down here on earth. I'm just going to die anyway. My life is but a breath. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you that this is such a big deal? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. And here Job makes a sorrowful mistake. It is right for the theologian to ask, why does God care? We understand God's perfect law. We understand his perfect standard. But God is immutable. God is impassable. You cannot harm God, you have done him no injury if you have sinned. Why then, why then does he care if you sin? I'm going to give you the answer. Because St. James gave us the answer first. Thankfully, we don't have to end this recording uh, on a downer note, we don't have to because St. James wants us to keep in mind from James 5.11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job does not deny his sin. He doesn't deny that he's transgressed in the past, but this is the man who's always offered up offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings unto God, consecrated his own children, won't even kill himself in this moment. But why does God care whether you sin? It is because God loves you. It is precisely because he loves you that he does not want you corrupted by sin. Does any of us have a child that we wouldn't care if they became a heroin addict when they moved out of the house? 
Does any of us have such a cold, hard heart that if we had a daughter who turned to pornography or prostitution, that our heart would not break for them every single day? And if you had told your children that this would mean that they would have no inheritance from you, wouldn't you want to see them turn around? Wouldn't you want to show them grace like the father does with the prodigal son? Job asks a question here that I praise God is answered. His law is not just there to damn you. The second use of the law is not just there to make you feel bad. It is there to express God's love to you. He cares about you. He wants you to live eternally. He does not want you damned by your sins. He watches over all of mankind and permits this testing so that he can lead them to their Savior and they can be with the Lord forever. With Job's question, we need to understand and internalize this. The law is not a bad thing. The law is a wonderful sign of God's love. He does not want you guilty of something that makes it to where he will not be with you. He does not want you so tainted by sin and destroyed by it that you burn in hell for all eternity because you refused to come home, O prodigal. And yes, we understand we cannot do this by ourselves. So Job, ultimately, with saying, Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? This prophet asks a question that we can gratefully, thankfully answer with, one day a man is going to go to a cross and he is going to suffer worse than Job did. For you. And the law is going to point him to Christ. The law is going to point us to Christ. And we will rejoice that it did so because otherwise we would never have known someone that went through it worse than Job and was even more righteous than him being perfect so that we could be with God forever. Now next week, Job's friend, not Eliphaz this time, but Bildad is going to answer as we go through Job chapter 8. We will get in detail to a well-educated response to what Job says, but as with every response of his friends, one that is misguided. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. And amen.